Okay. If you're not already standing, will you go ahead and stand for a reading of God's word? I will be reading 1 Thessalonians 5:23 through 28 in the English Standard Version. And if you do not have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab one from the seat pocket in front of you. It'll be on page 574. And um, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home with you as our gift to you. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is our life. You even, in rebuking the devil, said that man, he doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we, as those who will now feast upon your word, we thank you for the life that we find in it. We thank you that your your word is life. We thank you that you have supplied everything we need in your word everything that we need to know you. You have allowed yourself to be discovered in your word. And Lord, we know that without your word, we would not know you. And so we thank you for it. Lord, I pray that you would enliven it to our hearts. Let it it have its transforming and sanctifying work in us. Lord, I pray that, that you would, even as Paul begins this, that you would, as the God of peace, yourself sanctify us, spirit, soul, and body completely so that we may be presented blameless to Jesus at that day and we look forward to that day. Lord, I pray for your help, your your assistance, Lord. I pray for your strengthening and your correcting as I present your word, Lord, that I wouldn't do it haphazardly or do it inaccurately, Lord, but I would speak um, as one who trembles at your word, Lord, and, and that you would uh, cause me to be a vessel that is that is able to be used for your glory this morning. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Landy, for helping us this morning. Um, so here we are, 13 weeks. 13 weeks, five chapters. I don't know what that says, but it's, it's just where we're at. So 13 weeks, five chapters. Our journey is coming to a close in the first book of the, the letter to the Thessalonians. Um, and in this letter, as we've talked about over and over, Paul has accomplished a bunch of stuff. He's reconnected with the Thessalonians after being pulled away from them way too quickly. He has shared with them over and over his ongoing love for them. He's commended them for their spiritual progress and, and the love that they have for one another. And he has also commended them for the example that they're setting for other believers in their region. And he's helped them to understand, this was his, pretty much his main goal in this book, he's helped them to understand the events surrounding the sure return of the Lord and so that they would not grieve as unbelievers grieve. He's also encouraged them to 
be sexually pure, to be joyful, to be prayerful, to be thankful, to be discerning. And he's assured them of God's power at work in them. And with all of that, as you can imagine, they have a lot to consider. They have a lot to consider as the first recipients of this letter, so much that it's taken us 13 weeks to consider what they have to consider. And Paul, aware of that, he selects his final words in this letter very carefully. As he has done throughout the letter, his main purpose in these closing words is to encourage them. He has a single aim, and that's to help them carry on in their new identity as followers of Christ Jesus. Now, we've talked about it over and over and over again, but I want you to to kind of humor me and just for a moment think again about what this church is experiencing at the time that Paul writes this letter. They're experiencing severe persecution. They're experiencing the death of people in their fellowship. They have a real need for rootedness and for spiritual maturity as they dwell in a city that is just lousy with paganism and idolatry. If Paul were to give them, in his final words, just one more spiritual to-do item, something for their checklist, they might just become overwhelmed. But if he doesn't keep holiness, the pursuit of holiness before them as the goal, they can become slothful and start to just simply conform to the culture around them. So instead of doing either of those things, what Paul does in these final words is he points to God as the source of their endurance and their hope. He isn't saying to them, okay, Thessalonians, try harder. He's also not saying to them, okay, Thessalonians, take it easy. He isn't focusing on them in these final words at all. In fact, he points away from them and he directs them to look to God. And this is what he says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now notice first, he doesn't refer to the Lord as a God of power or a God of justice. Now we know, we know that God is those things. There's no doubt about that. That's not up for debate. But instead here, Paul chooses to refer to to the Lord as the God of peace. Man, that's wonderful. Do you understand? If you don't, I hope you will before you leave here. Do you understand that only people who have been redeemed by Christ Jesus, only people who have been redeemed by Christ can call God the God of peace. Only those. Other people have no right to call Him this. God cannot be called a God of peace by those who have rejected Him, by those who continue to rebel against Him. Those people have no choice in this matter. They cannot look to God and call Him a God of peace. They can only see him, look to him, hear what he has to say to them, and fear him. Tremble before him if they're smart. Let me prove it to you. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, describes the God's posture towards the unrighteous. He says, God is a righteous judge. 
and a God who feels indignation every day. That is a seriously harsh portion of Scripture. God feels indignation every day. That's anger. That's wrath. God is not someone who just sits around looking at his creation with warm fuzzies flowing out of himself as this creation shakes its fist in his face. God feels indignation every day. And listen to this. This is clear as can be. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He's bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The Bible says in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Peace with God. To look on him and say this is a God of peace is not something that humanity can universally claim. Nor is it something that we can ever earn. Nor is it something that we can acquire by our goodness. Any peace that anyone ever has with God was purchased for them on the cross of Jesus. There are There, on the cross of Jesus, the righteous wrath of God that you and I all deserved was satisfied for those and only for those who would believe on him. And who would cry out for his mercy. Outside the cross, listen to me carefully, outside of the cross of Jesus, you have nothing to expect from God but certain judgment for your constant sinning. That's it. It's all you got to look forward to outside of the cross. But man, man, what an unspeakable blessing to be able to look into the face of God and praise Him as the God of peace because of the cross of Jesus Christ. What an amazing Blessing that is to know that God's posture towards us has changed because of what Jesus has done. Colossians tells us that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Because of Jesus' obedience to God, there's been a cessation of hostilities between us. That's good news. That's good news. You and I if we have believed in Christ, are no longer at war with God. And this is, this peace that we have with God as believers, as followers of Christ, this peace that we have, it's no uneasy ceasefire like you see in the Middle East so often. Paul doesn't say, now may you sanctify yourselves for the God of peace. Not what he said. He didn't say, get your ducks in a row, get your act together. He doesn't say, now may you sanctify yourselves for the God of peace. He puts God in the driver's seat when he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Wow, that's good. God's working is making us holy. It's not my working, it's God's working. He is the driving force in my pursuit of holiness. I don't know about you, but that takes a lot of pressure off of me. It's wonderful news. By sanctification, we read this a few times in this verse that uh, Landy read to us. Sanctification, that word, you may not be familiar with it. And it means the process by which we're transformed from people who are under slavery 
to the power of our sin natures. Every one of us were born with a nature to sin. There is no such thing, listen to me, there is no such thing as a good person. Have you discovered that? Have you? There is no such thing as a good person. They have not been born yet. Only one has ever been born. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He, and, and you know what we did to the only good person that ever lived? We killed him. The only good person. We are not good. We're enslaved to the power of sin in our very nature. And what, what sanctification does, it takes people like that and it transforms them into people uh, through a miracle that none of us understand. It transforms us into people who increasingly reflect the holiness of an absolutely holy God. And to bring him glory more and more with the passage of time. Sanctification isn't just moral improvement that's undertaken by hardworking, vow-making religious people. It's not people who just say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be good at this. I'm going you know, to address this sin and I'm going to work hard to do it. No, in sanctification, God puts his power to work and makes, uh, makes more, make us, us more like himself by convicting us of sin, by empowering us with the Holy Spirit, and by working in us to change our innermost desires. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing when this happens. Our salvation that happens when we first believe that is accomplished by God alone. Amen? We would not even desire to be saved, nor could we take any action to be saved, if God did not first call us and cause us to be reborn of the Spirit and give us the faith to believe. If you are a Christian, you owe only thanks to God for that and no credit to yourself. God has caused you to be born again by His Spirit. But sanctification, when we talk about sanctification as opposed to salvation, it works a little differently. The key verse to understand this is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, we're given this command to work out our own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, sanctification is a joint effort. Both parties are working. First, work out your own salvation. Next, it is God who works in you. As God convicts, that's his part, we repent. That's our part. As God empowers by his Holy Spirit, that's his part, we obey. That's our part. The initiative, though, is God's. I tried to come up with an analogy to explain this to you. And this is what I came up with. It's like a parent who teaches a child to ride a bike. Have you ever done that? Raise your hand if you've ever taught a child to ride a bike. That's what God is doing in the work of our sanctification. The, the, child, the parent is teaching the child to ride a bike. And all the time, he or she is shouting, you can do it! And he shows us how. Well, tightly holding onto the bike. That's what sanctification is. God is, is showing us what to do. He's cheering us on, but he's not letting go. He's not letting go. He's holding us up. We think we're learning balance. No! God is holding us. 
Uh, the church I grew up in, there was a lot of talk of holding on to Jesus. And it was such a liberating day when I learned that it's not so much about me holding on to Jesus as much as it is celebrating the fact that Jesus is holding on to me. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Paul says in this passage that God is not only working in us so that we will do his good pleasure, but so that we will desire to do his good pleasure. God puts the want to in you. Because guess what? The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks after God. So if the Holy Spirit wasn't working a miracle to make me want to desire God, to make me want to, to reflect His holiness, it would never happen. I love the pleasure of sin. Am I alone? I love it. I have pursued it for way too much time in my life. But when I, when I became a believer in Jesus, this miracle happened where though I still loved the pleasure of sin, I began to understand that there was something even more pleasurable. And that is to live pleasing to the one who gave everything for me. And this desire began to be born in me that wasn't from me. It was foreign to me. And it began to be born in me. And it was the working of God that gave me the want to. If personal holiness is ever going to happen in us, God is going to have to work in us. So here's the deal. No matter how moral you think you are becoming, God gets all the credit. If holiness is going to work in us, then it has to be God's working and he gets all the credit. Paul says that our hope of changing is not found in all of our blood, sweat, and tears, but rather in the acting work, active working rather of God himself. Whoa, stop and just think about that. Consider what a wonderful thing that you've just heard. This God, think about what we said at the very beginning of the message. This God who wants was at war with you. He was sharpening his sword. He was bending his bow and you were in his crosshairs. That same God has now taken a loving, active, personal interest in you. That is amazing. You who once were enemies, God has made you friends. Psalm 23 Famously says that God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And when I read that as a, as a child, a teenager growing up, I used to think that the only application of that was that God protects me in the presence of the devil, or God, you know, protects me from people who mean me harm. But think about that. My enemy before the cross was God Himself. And God, as we demonstrated here earlier, has spread a table before me. Right in the presence of the one who was my enemy, now is my friend. And and now I feast, not only at his table, I feast on him in his presence. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. So think about that. God's personal interest in you. His hand is extended toward you to patiently recreate you, just like a potter shapes a beautiful, useful vessel from clay. He is a hands-on God, aren't you glad? 
He doesn't just give us a list of to-dos and send us off on our ways. He doesn't just uh, clear your account so that you could work to get all your ducks in a row. Paul says that may the God of peace himself sanctify you and not just sanctify you, but sanctify you completely. If you have still, I don't know how you would do it in this church, but if you still are sitting there and you have some false sense of how good you are, this What I've just told you won't mean anything if you have a sense of how good you are. If you think you're doing pretty good, you're mostly keeping it together, and generally you're a decent person, the promise to sanctify you completely will produce absolutely no praise from your lips. Because you're thankful for any help that God gives you, but you're thinking you're doing pretty good on your own. But if like I do so often, you find yourself just screaming, crying out Paul's words in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you recognize the presence of remaining sin in your soul and you hate it, this promise to sanctify you by God, the the God of peace himself, and to sanctify you completely, man, it's going to mean something. It's going to mean something. Paul prays, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us often think of our salvation as being a benefit primarily for the immaterial part of us. We use phrases like, well, Jesus saved my soul. Which is true, but it's limited. See, Paul doesn't stop by saying, Jesus saved my soul. What he's indicating here is that God does not restrict his purifying fire, the activity of making us new to some spiritual region of our being. His prayer is that the whole person would be sanctified by the God of peace, our spirit, our soul, our body, and what a glorious promise is contained in this prayer. This means, if, you don't, if you're not following, if you're not tracking what Paul is saying, this means that through the sanctifying work of the God of peace himself, that when Jesus Christ comes, your spirit, yes, yours, will be completely purged of all sinful desire and every last trace of self-centeredness. What a day. It means that your soul will never again be tormented by anxiety, depression, panic, out-of-control emotions. It means that your physical body will no longer ever again be polluted by disease, by injury, by brokenness, by deterioration, and not even death ever again. That's the promise. That's the promise. Spirit, soul, body, completely. Though Paul alludes here, again, as he has throughout the book, to the return of Christ, his use of the present tense, may God do it now, 
His use of the present tense language should give us all hope that God's work of remaking us is already in progress. You are not waiting for Jesus to show up to be made new. God's work in you is already in progress. And all believers should be able to look at their lives and see evidence of his refining right now. You may think, I've got a long way to go, but let me tell you, if you look close enough, you'll see that you've come a long way. His work is already working in you. He's already, there's already progress being made. That's what it means to be sanctified. The things that will finally be perfected and completed in you when Jesus appears will be the result of a process that began when you first believed. Going on and on and on and on. Don't lose heart. Knowing this, knowing that God is already in process and that someday his work will be complete, it frees us to be honest about our faults and failures even now. You don't have to put up a front. You don't have to pretend to be anything. Because we're all in the process, amen? All of us. None of us are exempt. I don't have to pretend to be something I'm not in the here and now. Because while I recognize that I'm not who I want to be. Believe me, I recognize it. Usually within about 15 minutes of waking up in the morning, I recognize I'm not who I want to be. But can I tell you something? With confidence and maybe even a little boasting, I am not who I was. I am not who I want to be. But brothers and sisters, I am not who I was. And neither are you. Just like you, I'm still on the assembly line. And the power of the church that we so often take for granted, the power of the fellowship that God has called us to in the middle of the saints, the body of saints, is that we can serve each other by cheering each other on in our growth towards holiness. That's a great benefit of being a part of a body of believers. Key verse for this is Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. The writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These verses tell us a few things that we really ought to remember. First, don't let go of the hope found in the gospel. Hold fast your confession. What what is the hope of the gospel? It is the assurance of our salvation at the time we believe. It is our sanctification, the assurance of our sanctification in the present. And it is the promise of our glorification with Christ when he appears in the future. Our basis for clinging to that hope is God's faithfulness, not our own. Secondly, part of our assignment as the people of God, as the church, is to stir up one another through mutual encouragement that we might always pursue love for each other, stir each other up to love each other, stir each other up to behave in ways that glorify God. And this happens best, thirdly, when we're spending time together. This means at church, for sure, Sunday mornings, 
together in meetings like this. But that's too limited. It also means when we're just sharing life and carrying each other's burdens in the real Sunday through Saturday world, that's how we don't neglect to meet together all through the week in whatever capacity that we can. Our commitment to each other should grow, the writer of Hebrews says, as our awareness of the coming of Jesus Christ increases. Like Paul said earlier in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Stay awake. Stay awake, brothers and sisters. Don't fall asleep. Don't let the culture sing you a lullaby. Stay awake. Stay awake. The Word of God is your alarm clock to keep you awake. Stay awake and help others to do so as well. Paul concludes this series of thoughts with a sure promise, and I love it. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Mm. You can take that to the bank. I have a confession to make. Some of you have seen this. You've noticed this in my life. I've been exposed to you, to my great shame and horror. I am not a craftsman. I am not a repairman. I am not a mechanic. By any stretch of the imagination, my ignorance in the use of tools is absolutely legendary. I am certain that if I were ever to make it on their television show, I could bring Chip and Joanna Gaines to absolute tears. That they would weep in my presence because of the ignorance that I would display. When you visit my house, and most of you have, but if you haven't, you're welcome. But I have to warn you, you will find, most certainly, you are going to find unfinished projects. You're going to find things that need repair. Because my ability was soon outpaced by my enthusiastic ambition for said projects. But God, this is good news, God is not like me. What God undertakes, He finishes. And more than that, God does not patch things up. God only makes masterpieces. It's all He knows how to do. Whatever He touches is beautiful. Whatever he touches is perfect. None of his saints in that final day as we stand before Christ will be held together by spiritual duct tape and veiling wire. None of us. So can I encourage you not to judge God's ability, not to to judge God's craftsmanship by what you see right now. He's still in the process. You're still on the assembly line. He's still working. Don't judge him. You're a work in progress. I love Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Bible says when Jesus was ministering on earth and doing things that the people would look at him And in amazement, they would say this, he does all things well, and nothing has changed. 
Before concluding his letter, Paul makes a couple of simple but urgent requests. In chapter 1, Paul had told the Thessalonians that he constantly prayed for them. In chapter 3, he prayed this short prayer that they would be reunited, their spiritual progress would be unimpeded. But now, near the end, he says these simple words, Brothers, pray for us. Charles Spurgeon, who many of you know is my absolute hero, he preached to thousands in his lifetime in the late 1800s. And he was considered, he hated this title, but people called him the Prince of Preachers because of his eloquence and the depth of his preaching. Um, And he once remarked this powerful thing, this man who could command thousands of people week in, week out. He said this, For myself personally, I say this morning that no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. I reckon, brethren that the more of prayers I have, the wealthier I am in real riches, in that form of personal estate which is better than gold or silver. What he's saying there, best thing you could do for Charles Spurgeon was to pray for him. And he considered that of greater wealth than if you showered him with, with monetary blessings every week. He wanted the prayers. I say to that, as a pastor, I say a hearty amen. I cannot tell you how I long and plead for your prayers. They matter to me more than you know, and that is not just blowing smoke. I need you to pray for me. I hope many of you have made and will make the commitment to do that. Both Paul and Spurgeon call the people that they are addressing brothers. Though Paul is a spiritual father to the Thessalonians who bears some authority among them, he does not demand their prayers. He doesn't say, hey, you better be praying for me. He doesn't imply that they're under some compulsion to give them. Though they have differing assignments from the Lord, of course, they're the body at Thessalonica and Paul's an apostle, he recognizes his equality with them as a sinner saved by grace. He is not elite and they are not inferior is what I'm trying to say. On the contrary, they're brothers and they have the same father. And as such, he lays out a need for their support. As he prays for them, he asks that they would lift up his name to, before God in return. And I have no shame in asking you, brothers and sisters, that you would show me the same kindness. We may never know in this life what prayer has done or what prayer could have done, but we do know that the promises that the Bible attaches to prayer are almost limitless. Jesus said himself in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Let's be a church that asks. Amen? But after asking for prayer for himself, He has something to say about how they should continue to regard each other. He says to them, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So if you guys would just line up right here. Honey, honey, will you hand me my chapstick? I'm going to obey the word this morning. Most of us have seen Middle Eastern and some European peoples who freely greet each other upon meeting with a kiss. It's the way that certain cultures have expressed warmth and friendship and acceptance for millennia. But now you can take a deep breath 
Go ahead. I'm not suggesting that we return to that form of custom. You're off the hook. However, please hear me on this. I also think that if we write off this instruction as archaic, that we do so to our own detriment. Why is that? You might be interested to know that of all the one another commands in Scripture, there's there's several of them, that this one is the second most often repeated to greet each other with a holy kiss. Did you know that? It's second only to love one another. So in order, love one another, greet each other with a holy kiss. It must be pretty important to make it into the Bible that much. So whether we express our affection with a hearty handshake or a friendly hug, Christians, listen to me carefully, should be people of obvious affection for one another. If you don't kiss each other, I would probably encourage you not to. That's okay. But there should never, ever, ever, ever be any doubt among anybody that comes in here that we are people that love one another. That doubt should not exist. We should be people of obvious affection for one another. Let me ask you a question. Isn't that a mark of healthy families? Isn't it? Churches shouldn't be stiff, cold, formal places, but places where love for each other is evident to all who would ever dare to examine our lives. So take that how you mean it. Please don't kiss me. Ginger, you're off the hook. You can. Everyone else, don't kiss me. But let's show each other genuine, obvious affection. Everybody on board with that? Okay. Paul also says in closing, this is interesting. You might have just read right over it or when, when you were reading it with Lansing. I put you under oath, it's pretty serious, before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. What possible uh, encouragement can 21st century church get from that? There were churches that had been planted in very close geographical proximity to the Thessalonians in the region of Macedonia where they were from. There were churches in Berea, just a few miles down the road, Philippi on the other side. If the Thessalonians were confused about things that Paul had taught them and if they had questions, how many of you would bet the chances were pretty good that the other churches did too? Probably a pretty good chance, right? And so Paul says, simply, share the word. Share it with them. Sunday mornings, this is why we come together. This is why you guys give me the privilege of being able to to dig through Scripture and share with you some, some insights, hopefully, from the Holy Spirit on Scripture. Sunday mornings, though, are only a part of how we do this. In our church, we do it through life groups. We do it in Bible studies. You, you know, I see some of you share scriptures and, and uh, biblical thoughts on Facebook and Twitter. The, the point is you can never share the word enough. I put you under oath to share the word. Share the word wherever you, at, wherever you are. It's, it's the word that people need. And guess what? I say something about social media almost all the time. The people around you, the people in your Facebook friends list or that follow you on Twitter need the word far more than your opinion. Hey, Tabor, turn my mic on. I don't think anybody heard that. Let me try it again. Is it on now? Okay. The people 
who are your friends on Facebook and who follow you on Twitter need the word of God far more than your opinion. That's a little bit better. Maybe you need to crank up the volume a little bit. Your opinions will pass soon. They will pass soon. But the Bible says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. People need the word. If you're unsure about something concerning, maybe that makes you nervous. I can't share stuff on Facebook or even in in private conversations or in live groups because I don't know the Bible. If you're unsure about something concerning Jesus or Scripture, strike up a conversation with someone. Someone that can help you understand. And when you learn something new, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with someone else. We have a great opportunity for that. I'm going to put a shameless plug here. We have a great opportunity. Every Wednesday night at our house, we have a Bible study, and it's designed just for people without any kind of sense of exposure or embarrassment or anything like that, just to ask questions that they have about all kinds of things. We've covered all kinds of things. And if you want, if you need a group like that, if that would help you to kind of understand some things, you're welcome. Come aboard. We'd love to have you. 6.30 at my house every, every Wednesday night. But share the word. Paul began this letter with his customary greeting. Some, some version of it is found in almost all of his letters. When he said to the Thessalonians back in chapter 1, grace to you and peace. He almost always starts his letters with some variation of grace and peace. See, grace is the means and the only means by which we can stand boldly accepted before God. We didn't get here on our own. It's all because of grace. But peace, as I said earlier, signifies the nature of our relationship to God because of Jesus. We have peace now. And Paul's final words in this letter, before he closes, closes this for all of time, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What a beautiful benediction that is. Beautiful. Your life in Christ can only begin by grace. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that none of us have the right to boast. But your life in Christ only continues by grace. You're not doing anything to keep yourself saved. Remember? I'm not holding on to Jesus. Jesus is holding on to me. Your life in Christ continues by grace. You are sustained by the grace of God. You are drawn by the grace of God. You are renewed and sanctified by the grace of God. All is of grace all the time. And without grace, you have nothing. You will die in your sins. Grace is your only hope. Paul in Romans spoke of the grace by which we stand. The implication is without grace, we don't stand. We fall. So whether you're just starting out in Christ, as many of you are, whether you're in the middle of your race, as many of you are, or whether you are at an age where you're nearing the end, 
May I encourage you this morning, cling to grace. Cling to the grace of the Lord Jesus. May you appreciate grace. May you proclaim grace. May you boast in grace. And I say to you as your pastor, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you that you're sanctifying us, God. God, I thank you that way back in 1987, you called my name. And I wasn't looking for you. I didn't care about you. I was your enemy. Lord, you put down your sword. You put down your bow. And you invited me to your table to sit and feast on Jesus. We've been having dinner ever since that moment, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that, that you took me just a rotten scoundrel, Lord, and you just began to formulate your desires in me and, and, and help me to sometimes do your will, God, and, and to do it increasingly more and more. God, I stand before these people who have every right to examine my life, Lord, and I just repent to you for all the times when you have been compelling me to righteousness, and I chose unrighteousness, Lord God. I repent of all the times, Lord God, when, when your, your power was given to me to obey and I chose to disobey, Lord God. I, I repent of that before this people. And Lord, I ask you that you would just let the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with me, Lord God, so that I would continue to pursue your truth and, your, and, and, and pursue obedience and to pursue holiness that can only be granted, only be given by you. I thank you that the God of peace himself is sanctifying my spirit, soul, and body completely so that I may be presented blameless before Jesus Christ at his coming. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room that applies to. Lord, I, I just want to ask you. Lord, I want to beg you. I want to plead with you. If there are those here that have not heard your calling, heard your name, them, heard you call their name and call them to the great salvation of our wonderful God that was purchased by the blood of the Son of God, I ask that you would call their name this morning, Lord God. Father, don't let anybody here this morning perish, but let them find everlasting life because they believe in you. So God, do your work. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to do your work and let this be the day where people come to know you and serve you and, and, and walk in a life where you work in them both to will and to work for your good pleasure, Lord God. Only you can do it, and so we trust you to do so, Lord God. Do a work in their heart. Call them to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God, help us to hear clearly the voice of your conviction this week. Help us to clearly respond in obedience, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, to, to put down the things that you tell us to put down and pick up the things that you put us put, uh, to tell us to take up, Lord God. Help us to desire to do what you've called us to do. Put the want to into us, Lord God. 
and then work out your will through us, through our hands, through our feet, through our mouths. God, work out your will. Thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.